Hello, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. This is another edition brought to you by myself, Isaac Kujere Noabua, and my co-host, Daniel Merki. We have today another guest that is going to share an inspiring story of how he left, she left her hometown of Zimbabwe, came to the UK and built a tribal institution, has had many impacts of young girls, has had many impacts of many people. Um... And like we always do, we seek for people who have ideas around how to transform Africa. People who are not just having ideas, but also actually do as people who have built on-ground solutions and they can share their real-life experiences of how they are transforming Africa and they are changing the narrative of the continent in their own life. So today we have those um, one of those people with us, a distinguished personality. We are Fungai Endermera. CEO and founder of the Flame Lily Healthcare Checkup Health and others. Um, Funga has 20 years of experience in business leadership. She's a nurse by profession. She's an entrepreneur. She's a STEM ambassador. She's an angel investor. I could say watching her video, she's a motivational speaker. She's a very, very great um, activist of women and supporter and empower of women and we have Funda here to share her story. So Funda, thank you very much for joining us, Fungai. <laughs> thank you so much, Isaac and Daniel. You guys are doing amazing work on the continent and I'm super proud that you know we are starting to have these conversations um around who we are, shaping our narratives and making sure that we become representatives of our continent in a positive way and we bring out what's really happening on the on the continent. So yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here and I'm looking forward to us having these conversations. Thank you. Okay. So my first question will be that you left Zimbabwe to the UK in 2000. Um, I know you've said in the past that it was because the health system or the nursing sector was not really thriving. But what makes someone um, who, for the context of our audience, and I know you speak on this, who didn't have a degree, think that, have the confidence, I think that's the word, have the confidence, more likely the audacity to want to pursue such a dream and even come and do all that you have done. Oh, thank you so much, Isaac. So actually, I want to I wanna paint a picture for our audience, right? And because I have found this very interesting to myself, and I'm, I think that's going to be really interesting to our audience. So I am born in Zimbabwe. And funny enough, my mother is South African. Um, and my father is Zimbabwean. And my father, my granddad, who is my mom's dad, left South Africa to come and work in Zimbabwe. That's the history that I, I am told. And my mom being born in Zimbabwe, believe it or not, she never visited South Africa 
up until the time when I was already in the UK, that's when she was after her 60s, she went to South Africa to visit her original space for the very first time. So having that kind of history for myself, um, it, we grew up knowing that people migrate for different reasons, for one reason or the other, but we are, as human beings, humans who migrate from one place to the other. And then when I look at my father's history, I also realize that actually my uh, descendants from where my father comes come from actually don't originate from Zimbabwe. Yet, these are two people who find themselves in Zimbabwe and they find themselves bringing up children in Zimbabwe who, who then become Zimbabweans. So I think there is another story for another day around this topic. But I think what's important to realize is that we are people who are always migrating. And I don't think that we are meant to be limited by geography in terms of where we end up. Um, I believe that we all have got um, a purpose and that purpose sometimes has to throw you all over the globe for you to kind of find yourself and realize, right? So I think for me, it was, it, it was not even a, a big story or a big job for me to think about, okay, where do I need to go or what do I need to do? But really what was driving uh, my thought process when I look back was I had grown up in poverty. You know, my mom and dad had found themselves living in a very small uh, city, which is called Kadoma, in a very small, it's not a city, actually, it's a town called Kadoma, in a very small, definitive place called Rimoka. And then that place is in a country called Zimbabwe on the African continent. And you realize that growing up in those places is very, very difficult because nobody ever dreams or think anything is going to come out of those places. But for me, I remember the biggest people who played a big part in me having this kind of mindset was my mother was a very positive person, even though we were in such poverty, but we could see through her hard work, she was a dressmaker and all the clothes we wore, she would make them. She was very creative with the little that she had. And she made sure that we went to church where we were given a very good foundation in terms of our belief system. So I remember going back, I can go back when I'm five, remembering being at school wearing a very ragged uniform in a class where people would bully those people who didn't dress well and stuff like that. And I remember one boy in my class bullying me and saying, often oh, guy, look at you, look at the way you look, look at your dress, it's ragged and stuff like that, it's torn and all that. And I remember being so bold and telling him that, guess what? This life is not my life. I am meant for more than this. And this is what my parents have given me, but I'm not going to be like this. And so I grew up from the age of five knowing that I should be more and I, I must be more. And then when I go to church and I'm told that, you know, I am the apple of God's eyes, you know, and God is looking to be good and to be gracious to me. When I went to Sunday school, those things, they formed a very good foundation that I am born for greatness. So my belief system was shaped in a way, whereas I had so much poverty around me, I knew that I was more. I knew I could do more. So when it came to me finishing my nursing and making decisions, what did I want to do? It was very simple. I wanted to go where I could be more. I wanted to to change everything. I wanted to change my mother's story. I wanted to change my narrative. I wanted to change everything. So literally 
making that decision, Isaac, was super simple. I had finished my nursing. I wasn't going to settle for whatever was around me. I was going to look for something that was going to be, that was going to make me more. And, and literally that, that, that's how that, that decision happened. It, it, it really was a no brainer, right? <laughs> so I could, I could keep going, but yeah, literally it was like that. Um, you, you sound, you sound so confident and make it so simple, but I have seen a lot of people and they find it very difficult to aspire, to believe, to know that, yes, um, they've grown up in, um, rather unfortunate situations and they find it difficult to think in a global perspective. I think that even for educated people, most people are used to thinking around success, around achievement in correlation with their nearest forms of attraction in their nearest environments that makes them feel comfortable. I, I, I give this example um, um, to people often that when you go to a classroom and you see this brilliant young kid and because of, you know, our culture on the continent, we want to praise the, 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 the student that is, um, brilliant in the, in the, in the school. That kid feels like he's superior in that classroom, but that kid refuses to think that in that same classroom, there are at least 50,000 people in that same classroom. If he starts to think about it from the national perspective, and if he starts to think about it from the global perspective, there are probably 5 million or 50 million people in that same classroom. So that classroom doesn't become a classroom of three or four again. That classroom becomes a global village of students, but he's comfortable being the first there. Whereas if he's placing that global scenario, he probably will not be top 10%, right? And he'll probably not be in the top 2000. So my question is, how do we make sure that we're able to scale this kind of mentality? How do we make sure that we're able to build this kind of mentality in people? And I know you've given those um, an anecdotes of how you got that. But if you think about it, how do we scale that mentality of possibility for people that come from rather um poor environments or people who just limit themselves to local thinking i really think that you know currently we're now living in an amazing time for us to be able to shape those minds right imagine that right now because of the internet we are able to connect and we are not limited by location and so that's why you, me and you, we have a role to play. Those people in leadership, those people in, in places of authority, we have a role to play to make sure that we give good representation for those who look like us. Because imagine for me growing up, you know, I don't remember seeing people who looked like me on TV. I don't remember seeing, you know, people who came from mm, my surrounding being on TV so that I could say, oh my gosh, look at her or look at him. He comes from this surrounding. But now we have an opportunity for us to be out there on YouTube, on platforms that, you know, never existed during our time when we were younger. So I really think that now is an opportunity for us to, to take on those spaces and own them and occupy them for the positive and for that 
um, role to be able to shape those little minds. You know, if we can write books, if we can do these podcasts and they can get to these little minds in those poor spaces, they will have a light that will lead. They can touch it. They can feel it. They can connect with it. You know, I, I receive emails and messages on my Facebook and my Instagram on young boys and girls from Rimoka Kadoma telling us that, oh my gosh, says Fungai, because you are here, because you are doing this, because I see you on Instagram, I can, I'm going to make sure that I finish my course or I finish my studies, you know? And people who watch my videos on YouTube, they'll say, because of you, I am going to continue to do it because I can know it can be done. So I think that the only way we can do it is us being out there, you know? That's why I make time to take time out of my extremely busy schedule and record even a seven minute or an eight minute video. At least I can reach out to another young boy or girl who is out there in Africa thinking I'm so stuck in this poor, uh, poor space. But I want to be that light and that connection. I want to be that representation for them. So I think we have a role to play those who've managed to come out of that so that we can pull the others in and be the light for them. Yeah, that's a very good and inspirational answer. Um, so you come to the UK, what happens? Right. So, oh my gosh, that's quite interesting, right? Because you make that decision, <laughs> you make that decision that we are going to go. I just got married and I remember telling my husband that, you know what? I cannot live here. I need to go. I need to go where I can make a difference. I remember receiving my first payslip when I worked in one of the hospitals in Zimbabwe. I was an ICU nurse. And my first salary, when I saw the payslip, I cried my heart out. I said, there is no way I'm going to make a difference at the stage, at the level I want to. So I need to be out of this place. Anyway, I packed my bag, my small suitcase, and arrived in the UK. April 2000, I arrived on the soil in the UK. I remember I'm coming from a place where I don't speak English. You know, English, I never spoke English in school. I never spoke English at home. Um, and I landed in a small village. In, a, in, in the West Midlands, uh, where people, white people in, in the care homes were seeing black women or black people for the very first time seeing them in, in real life. And I remember one elderly lady asking me and touching my skin and saying, oh my gosh, is this real? Is this skin real? You know, like touching my, saying to, about my teeth, are your teeth real? You know, so it's quite interesting that you have those experiences. And I think it's, it's how you look at those experiences that is going to shape your outcomes. So for me, when I was looking at those experiences and feeling them and experiencing them, I realized that, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity to be me, like, you know, to be different. Because at the end of the day, even if I try too hard to be white, I'm not going to be white, right? Even if I try too hard to change my accent, there is no way my accent is going to be a perfect West Midlands brum accent so i really i really made those decisions right at the beginning because i knew i was different so i i i chose to take my difference and make it a learning for those around me like accepted that okay this elderly women in the care home they want to feel and touch my skin okay yeah right here i am yes i am black yes i am african and yes i'm coming here for the first time but this is the real deal this is who i am this is what it is so I think making that decision when I look back 
really helped me because I also look at those around me who try too hard to change their accent or change themselves, change their hair, change the way they behave, that you start to have that identity crisis. So for me, I was aware that, okay, oh my gosh, I am new here and it's in, it's a new space. It's shocking, but I'm not going to try too hard, um, to be what I'm not, you know, because that would have been a too much a big job. So I just decided, okay, I'm going to chop my hair. I'm not going to try and wear all these artificial hairs. I'm going to be natural. I'm just going to be me, you know, I, I really made those decisions right at the beginning. And, and I could see then when I, when I already made that, those decisions right at the beginning that, even the, the people I looked after, they knew that where is that African girl? You know, where, where, where is that African nurse? Or oh, I want to be nursed by that African nurse because I had made myself that person and I wasn't going to try to be something else. So that was really important. And then the next thing as well was that I knew that for me to excel, I needed to be excellent in what I did. And so the, the place where I got to and I worked doing my adaptation was was a care home again i became the go-to person for that unit and for that service and even the matron when she wasn't on duty she could call on me any given time and i was there like i kind of took ownership and i was excellent in my job they knew that it's fungi is not here things are not going to be okay and if things are not going to be okay ring fungi ask you the questions like i became the go-to nurse or the go-to manager for that unit. So I really think that um, when I look back, the key things for me was authenticity. Be yourself and be you. Don't try too hard to be what you're not, you know, and then become excellent in what you do that people, when you are not there, they know that there is a gap, like be on demand for, for that, whatever small or big thing that you do, J just be that. So for me, that I think that that's what happened right at the beginning and then I only worked for for a year as a nurse and realized that oh my gosh there is an opportunity um my husband followed me a month later to come and work and he dropped he was working in the legal space as a legal convincer and because we had agreed that we were going to just start a new life somewhere else when he got to the UK he also struggled he had his own struggles because he couldn't work in the industry he couldn't um, be peeling potatoes and working in those freezing spaces and those fridges and stuff like that. So we agreed that, okay, I will continue to work in the care home. Let's explore what's available. And I'm so glad. And I want to I wanna really highlight this point because I think a lot of us, when we come to the UK, I think the mistake that we do is that we don't look at the opportunities that are right in front of us. Or I think we feel that we are not educate enough for the opportunities that are that are available so when you come into a new i think when you migrate not necessarily uk but i'm going to talk specific to uk because that's what i am knowledgeable with so the uk has got an amazing system i'm not saying they're perfect but compared to where i'm coming from i think that there is huge opportunities for people who are already inside and those people who are who are coming from outside and i i find them to be more accommodating than other spaces. So when we arrived in the UK back then, Wolverhampton University was offering um, incubation programs for people who wanted to start businesses or who wanted to try new things and wanted to go into entrepreneurship. And they still do up to now. But back then, all they provided was, do you have an idea? And if you have an idea, 
we can incubate you and give you an office. We can give you a phone. We can give you a desk and we can give you a computer. And remember back then as well, computers were being introduced into the mainstream system, just like digital health now is being introduced. Oh, I mean, digitization is now coming and taking over everything post-COVID, right? So back then, computers were, were a big thing. You you could go to the Wolverhampton Uni University under their programs and just go to learn how to use a computer. And we agreed with my husband that we were going to enroll and take our idea of starting a business and be enrolled with and be incubated by the university. And to cut the long story short, that was the most amazing thing that happened because because of that, we became successful in business to what we are today. So I really just want to highlight the importance of looking at everything from a positive lens and looking at everything from a husk half class full you are a migrant it doesn't matter where you are don't get caught up in what's happening in the local politics or whatever look at the opportunities that you can jump into right away there is always an opportunity it's all about do you jump onto it or do you ignore it and think i'm not adequate enough or do you just think oh my gosh i don't fit here i'm just gonna just just play small and do you know what, what i can but for us we jumped onto that opportunity and the rest is history. We were given a mentor who mentored us and just taught us how to register with the regulators if you want to start a healthcare business. Gave us an office for us to register our address for the business. Showed us how to register a company. Gave us a phone that we could use to be making calls to the customers. And gave us um, um, the support that we needed for, for running and starting a business. And then you know, the rest is history. Our, our first customer was the care home that I've just told you that I was excellent as a, as, as a worker there because I simply approached my matron and she said, oh, Fungai, of course for you, I'll do anything. And I was like, okay, when we are short, I will be the one to find the stuff and I'll find the stuff and I'll supply it. Now, can you imagine what could have happened if I would have been arrogant, if I would have been a poor worker? Do you think I would have had that opportunity with this matron? No. So really, I think that the way we position ourselves is very important and to have a positive outlook and to have a spirit of excellence in everything we do and then just go for it and, and the rest will become history. Yeah, that's a very inspiring story. But as I had um, said before, you didn't have a diploma, maybe. And I want you to draw that perspective into it and how that didn't limit you, that you didn't allow that perspective to say, well, you know, I need to get a degree or that or that, but you stayed on the job, did what is, uh, what you had to do, which is actually very similar to Daniel's story, if Daniel's willing to share, but, um, you were able to do the job, not necessarily because of some advanced degree that you are doing. And I know education is very important, but how does that tie into the story and not having to let yourself be bogged down by the fact that you had not had the highest forms of education? Uh, that's a brilliant question, Isaac. And now I'm going to take the same attitude, right? Because that's the same attitude that has helped me to become a health tech entrepreneur without having to have gone to university. Up to today, I've not been to university to study technology, by the way. So I really want us to think about do you see opportunities? You have to have the eyes to see opportunities. And then number one, see opportunity. Number two, solve a problem. 
if you can have an attitude that sees opportunities and that solves problems you do not have to you do not need to be educated for you to execute and be successful in what you do right so for for me i think i just look at problems and think about okay if there is a problem how can i be the solution and and if you can look at it, at everything in every area of our lives every day there is a problem but then we must see problems as opportunities and as a, as an opportunity for me to excel and deliver on whatever that is required at that point in time so let me break that down so i was a i was a care home nurse right and i was a migrant so i want to i want to emphasize on that as well i was a migrant migrant i was a nurse i was i, I did only had a, a diploma i'd only done my adaptation nursing and only worked in a care home i wasn't even nhs experienced but i realized that there was a staffing problem there was a lot of demand but there was no one willing to take on the job of supplying and meeting the demand that was there and all i did was based on good relationships that i had with the with the matron that that was my matron then realizing the opportunity that was in front of me where the government and the university was providing incubation opportunities it was only a matter of con- having the confidence to contact the university and at the end of the day think of it this way you are either going to get a yes or a no answer if you get a yes that is an opportunity if you get a no what do you do you contact the next university or you find out the next information right so i think to answer your question we need to have the confidence to understand and believe that opportunities come to us every single day in every shape or form they come in problems that come into our lives or come into our spaces and they come in all shapes and forms but what's important is how we look at them so for me when i look back then the issue was there was a problem of nurses which the problems we say the same problems we have even today <laughs> the same problems that was there in 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 2000 the same problems but are you willing to take to have the confidence to ask the question and are you willing to have the confidence to take action so a lot of people will will want to talk about it and we will want to complain about it that oh my gosh there is so much shortage oh my gosh there is so many migrants coming into the uk oh my gosh we are so short and healthcare is not good enough but what are you as an individual doing about it you know and so if we can start to think about that forget the education because the education only comes to i guess equip us with a structured way of running a business so for example i ended up having to go to business school which i had to only go because i was very knowledgeable in terms of practical elements of running a business but i just needed to reinforce my knowledge with the um theory side and the study side and having to make sure i have those two come together but actually realizing that when i went for my business school studies as well i realized that i was excelling in that class because i had hands on experience so i was much better informed in terms of doing the course than the people who were in my class who were only doing it as theory so it, i really think that um we have an opportunity to become whoever we we want to be and to provide whatever solutions we want to provide 
as long as, as long as we are willing to do it, education doesn't matter really in the grand scheme of things, I don't think. Um, thank you very much for that answer. So you started building the company, you identified a problem, you started solving it. What was the first challenge, that, the first major hiccup that you faced in building it? Oh my gosh, let me tell you this one. This one hit me hard. <laughs> so the first major hiccup was, remember, we, we're just migrants. We've just come mm. to the UK. We were only just a year into the UK and then the, the company was started 12 months later, right? The first major uh, hiccup was funding, money, money problems. I remember back then there was the Black Empowerment uh, Network where you, you would have an opportunity for black people to go and borrow money. And I remember very specifically going to that organization in that body. And guess what? We only needed 500 pounds to buy a fax machine, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember we were not black enough to qualify for that 500 pounds, <laughs> believe it or not. Seriously, we were not black enough. You know, and when I look back, this was black empowerment. So when I look back now, is like I'm saying, the opportunities were there, but this one hit us hard because we felt, and we felt rejected. We felt like, you know, how how could we not qualify for this 500 pounds? But anyway, on a positive note, that taught us that we needed to create our own money to sponsor our dream. So literally, I doubled down on my work. My husband doubled down on her work. And the money that we were earning when we went to work, we would come and inject that money back into our venture and into our business. And literally, so we would go to work to bring and use that money to come and pay other people who were working within our business. And literally, we were working 24-7. So the lesson is, trust me, guys, you are going to face hiccups. It doesn't matter what you try, but you need those hiccups for you to build your resilience. So we knew that we were not going to be able to have anybody to give us money. That was fine. We, we were not credit worthy enough for us to access credit from the banks. But thank God for that. Because maybe if we had had credit lines, we probably wouldn't have built the resilience that we needed for us to know what it means to save for you to have enough money to support what you're trying to do. So I think that everything works together for your good. It doesn't matter good or bad, but really look at it from a very positive light viewpoint and you'll be okay the second hiccup was that we for the first 12 months we've set up that office we are working so hard we we had hired a few a full-time manager to be a registered manager because we did not qualify to be registered managers because i was still on on visa and my visa had restrictions on it and my my husband also had restrictions on his visa so we had to pay somebody full-time for the next 12 months believe it or not we were paying a professional to be the registered manager. That phone did not ring for 12 months. So now some people start to start try a business for one month, two months, and they say, oh, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm giving up because this is not working. No, you have to know what you want and you have to stick on it, right? So we, for the first 12 months, that phone never rang, but we never gave up. Like we kept paying those bills. We kept paying that manager. And we were sure that one day this phone will ring. So we continued to do business development. We continued to speak to the customers. And for sure, one day that phone rang after 12 months and the rest is history. So you are going to first face different hurdles, but you need to be resilient in terms of 
your approach and in terms of knowing what it is that you want. And don't allow any negative uh, thing or energy or any, any hiccup to make you stop. Go back on the drawing board if you need to, pivot if you need, if you need to, but giving up really is never an option and that's kind of the approach that I, I look at everything now. Yeah, hello Funga. Uh, very interesting because great story, great attitude. And uh, my question, you kind of hinted at it at the end just now when you mentioned the negative voices. But my question is like, when you came as an immigrant with that positive can-do and value-add mindset, um, I mean, how was that seen maybe amongst other immigrant community or the black community at that stage? And even like you described how you were working and then plugging back your money into your venture and all these things that have now basically created what you have. But at that stage, how was that perceived? And um, yeah. And uh, yeah. comments for the community. Yeah. So I, so I think when I look, when I look back, when we look back now, when I analyze, I have these moments when I just look back and think, oh my gosh, look how far we've come, right? Because when we came, we got ourselves, as, as you know, I think a lot of migrant communities do this, right? When you are coming, you are all going to, most of you staying in almost the same suburbs or locations because everybody is bringing this one and bringing that one. So you end up all staying as a community and you find that that community will have it's things going and it's values and it's stories and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. But for us, to be honest, we, we were a fish out of the water in that community because we just believed everything that everybody did not believe. And so the message in the community was, oh my gosh, look at them. They think they can be different or look at them. They think they can do this. Actually, they can't do it. And I remember some of the comments from some of the ladies as well in my in, in my community were like, oh my gosh, look at her. She's allowing her husband to be lazy and not for him to go to work and she's doing all the work. He she, She's just sponsoring him because he's trying to be a boss and, and all these negative things. But one thing we knew for sure was we had clearly defined what we wanted as a couple. We were very sure that this is the path that we want to try and this is what we want to do. And so we, we, we started to feel that we were, we were fish out of water, but we took advantage of that community because at the end of the day, that community is the people that we had whom we could hire ourselves. So basically the way we started was we did a survey. We simply wrote a survey and pushed it through all the doors in our little community and asked people questions. We did a questionnaire. If we were going to be giving you work and paying you this much, would you do it? Uh, if, we failed to pay you, how would you th feel and how would you react? And if we're going to give you work, how far are you willing to go? So we, we did a 10 question uh, uh, questionnaire and sent it out. And to be honest with you, that informed us of how people th thought about us. And so we were able to then segregate that information and know that already these people, they think this about us and they think that and they think that. Okay, that's fine. We are going to be okay with these things. But this is the action that we are going to take to make sure that we keep moving forward. So, so we then protected ourselves and shut ourselves into like a, into like a cocoon, if you like, because it's very important for you to protect your positive ed energy against a negative energy. And the way we did that was where everybody else would spend their weekends gathering and having parties and doing all the, these other things. 
we spent then our time spare time taking our, ourselves away from that energy and looking for new kind of energy that would feed into what we were trying to achieve so we looked for for example um i remember black country they had a black country directors business network we joined those networks even though we were literally new and then we so when we had spare each time we had spare time like rather than gathering in the community and doing the gossip and all that that went on in the communities we would kind of pull ourselves away really and just go and and draw from this positive energy so i think it's really important the negative energy is there at every stage and at every level it doesn't matter what level you are hence the importance of you protecting your positive mind and your positive energy and linking that energy to another positive energy where you can feed from so i think that when i look back yeah that's that was the best way of how we manage that so i i want to ask this question it seems like it may seem like i'm going back but i'm very passionate about how we can scale mindset we can scale motivations because those are things that people are not taught people are not taught to think in a certain way people are not taught to develop some certain mindset and those things seem subtle but those are the foundational pieces that you need to have success in life most of the time so you've built a lot of resilience persistence entrepreneurial spirit in your story reflecting on how you got there if you were supposed to and this is a very silly question i know but if you were supposed to start a school that was a school to teach persistence resilience entrepreneurial spirit um um learning to ask for help when you need it what would be your framework of how that is going to be run and what would you say what would you teach people Oh my gosh so I am very passionate Isaac like you and I I believe that in 10 years time so this is on my dream board I want to bring I want to build an entrepreneurship academy in Africa because entrepreneurship and the and money mindset are things that we are taught everything else barring these two yet these are the most important things especially as Africans that we need especially in the economies that we come from right we we should not be taught to grow up to work for someone from my belief system is that we should be taught to be innovative and to be enterprising because as africans if you look at our par- parents and we look, look at for example my mom and my dad they were enterprising because every day they would wake up and they have to figure out how they are going to feed the children how they are going to get the next dollar but is that that they just needed to learn how to make that more structured and make it that grow so When I look back, I think that we need to teach young children to think in small steps and to think to help them think innovatively in a way that they know that they are the creators of their realities and they are, they should not be consumers waiting for someone to say okay I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go to school but actually somebody must provide the pencil somebody might provide the book somebody must provide we we have got to teach our young people and our children that rather than somebody is going to provide the pencil and the book but actually i can create a book i can create a pencil so i i'm very passionate about that so for me the modules that would be in that entrepreneurship school or entrepreneurship modules is the innovative kind of thinking and the creative kind of thinking knowing that i am the creator of my reality I am the creator of 
everything around me and everything that I need to create that reality is provided and it's with me right now and I have it. So I always give an example to say, you know how we are taught from a young age that for you to be able to do everything, you need money. But actually, no, you don't need money because you have everything that you need for you to create what you need and then get money. Money is just a result. It's, it's just an exchange of, of commerce, exchange of making things happen. But I can actually make things happen with the trees that are around me, with the flowers that are around me. Um, so I think that kind of thinking is what we really need to build from a young age. And I would, I would think that education would need to be overhauled completely. Now that's a big job. But actually current education doesn't prepare the person for the real world. All it does is that it prepares them to want to look forward to work for someone. But using whose tools, who's creating everything that you need to use for you for your everyday living and for your everyday, you know, everything. You know, it, it's, it's, it's weird, but it's not, it's not right. And we need to create to, to make that right. And I, I believe that me and you, people who have had an opportunity to become leaders and be successful, have got that responsibility to go back and change and be the change that we then want to see in, in, in the next years to come. Okay. So now let's talk about, let's go back. You build a company, you face that major hair cap of $500 and um, $500 pound, which may not seem like a lot of money now, but um, in reference to that moment, it was that deal breaker. You said something about you are not black enough. Do you want to expand on that and how as a black person, if you try to go outside uh, beyond the continent and you want to reach outside the boundaries of what is possible, etc., you may face some, you may face some opposition and, and that opposition may even come from people like yourself or people who's, who, who, uh, who say they want to help, but, uh, may have other intentions. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what I've learned now anyway, you know, many years later now that I have gone through all it, through all it all, and then I'm here. And now when I reflect, right, it's, um, I think it's the, it's, it's the bias, right? Or the definitions that are put in, people are put into groups, groups of ethnicity. Um, and then that ethnicity is then broken down to, are you African? Are you Caribbean? And then all these, you know, barriers that are put. And I believe that these barriers, they are not good enough. Excuse me. They are not good for us because at the end of the day, at the core of everything, we are human. And if we can look ourselves at ourselves as humans, we then are able to solve the humanity problem or the human problems that are, that are, that we face in front of us. So let me fast forward that to where we are now. So where we are now, right now, right? For example, in the UK, we've had to go through what we are calling the Brexit. And if you look at the Brexit conversation, it was around British people feeling that migrant community and especially from African continent or other continents are coming to take over uh, England. But actually, this is just a narrative being shaped by the politicians and everybody else who want to push their agenda forward. The issue is not even that, you know. So when I look back on that, um, you know, those funds that were being sh uh, put together or, 
whatever the government was doing then while they were using the word or the bracket or oh, this is for blacks in the uk but actually they were not necessarily for everybody who's black right these funds were probably for people who were are uh, caribbean because then in the uk most black people were mainly from the caribbean descent rather than um, well in the region where i was it wasn't necessarily everybody african who could fit into the description of what they had put forward so i think we have to be careful especially now to make sure that we are not part of the people who are shaping and pushing this narrative forward i think we really need to come back to the drawing board and focus on human problems on our continent or on our country or or global problems because at the end of the day we may be in different continents or we may be uh, in different places having different challenges but when we are putting the solutions forward i am i am still skeptical about putting the solutions to say okay the solutions are only going to be for this um uh, group of people and if it is if a solution is going to be that for that group of people then be clear how you are defining the group and what are the intentions for example when covid covid 19 happened right now as i speak to you right at the beginning of covid in the uk we realized that oh black people were dying the most more than the white counterparts so this was a clear there was a clear definition black people were dying the most and statistics were supporting that than the white counterparts and so we stepped in with our healthcare digital solution to say we are coming forward to come and solve the BAME community problems which were specific to black african um asian ethnic minorities and we were going to put a solution that was going to solve this group of people's problems so i think that it's important for us to define those groups as long as our intentions are right and our agenda is clear why we are doing it how we are doing it and what we are aiming to achieve and actually it, there is a positive outlook to it when you look at it for, for example like i'm saying to you in the uk now in the digital health space or in the health space there's health inequalities and health equity disparities right and someone needs to come in that gap and solve those particular problems specific to that demographic but there is no way i we are going to turn around and say oh you are not black enough you are not ethnic minority enough because as long as somebody is not white they're black it, it, it is clear and so those definitions are already there and they're available so i really think that we have got to take our differences in a positive way and use them to achieve positive outcomes for the greater good okay so that's very intriguing you know the disparities in in the healthcare system let's talk about your business at the intersection of healthcare um especially with covid what what, what did you think your impact was as you were trying to understate but also tell us about the difficulties in the UK healthcare system that might not be apparent to people who are not there and how that mirrors to your experience previously in Zimbabwe. Right, so that is quite interesting, Isaac, because so let me just throw you, take you aback for a moment. So I'm already living in United Kingdom, right? And I am a migrant community uh, person and I'm working in the UK, working very hard. 
and I send a lot of money home to meet the needs of my parents. Now I'm coming from a health system which I've come away from because I did I was not satisfied with that healthcare system. But when I got into the UK, one thing for sure with the UK health system is that they've got the National Health Service which takes into account healthcare needs for everyone and healthcare is free in the UK. Uh, for everyone, of course, for migrant communities right now, they have got now um, other areas where they will say, okay, you may have to pay for this and that. But then, back then, healthcare was equal and was the same for everyone. And if it doesn't matter whether you're a migrant or whatever, you would receive the same healthcare. So that was fantastic and that was amazing. Um, so that was one difference that was there between healthcare where I was coming from and healthcare where I got to when I when I landed in the UK. But then when you now start to integrate in the system, you now start to realize that because I guess the UK healthcare system is mainly for white people because UK was mainly for white people, you tend to find that there is no, um, um, what can I say, ethnicity specific services that can be informed by the cultural competencies or the cultural needs of that demographic. So you realize that as you are now coming into the UK, there are new kind of problems that you then have to be dealing with or facing. For example, a, a local doctor might not understand some of the psychological problems or challenges you may be having as a black person related to your culture or related to the way of living. And then there are also other thing issues like um, black people in general and ethnic minorities in general, we are more predisposed to suffering high blood pressure and diabetes. I was, you know, and it's more common in black people than it is in um, white counterparts. Things like problems with women health, women's health, which is endometriosis, fibroids, and all those things, more common again in black people than it is in white counterparts. So these things, when we start to experience them in, in our communities, you tend to go to the doctors and you find that the doctor is not probably going to give you the service that you probably should be having or should be getting or the outcomes that you should be getting based on his limited knowledge because his or her limited knowledge is only based on looking after white patients, for example. So there are other complex issues that you start to realize as you become, as you start to integrate into the main system. Um, so for me, my for my interest in this area became apparent when I lost my father and my father-in-law uh, in 2004. They they died both a week apart due to undiagnosed diabetes. And literally, they were non-hypertensive patients both themselves, which means they both had cardiovascular issues. Um, they were on treatment for hypertension, but never had they been diagnosed for diabetes um, before. And so the the outcomes of that was that when their um, death reports were written, the outcomes were the findings were that they 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 both had suffered this this specific condition. Now, what I want you to realize is that so while um, we are in a different area or in a different space, you realize that the problems that are specific to us as a race they follow us wherever we are, and they are not going to you know, go away from us because we are in a different space or in a different area. So this bothered me, but it became a burden in my heart that it 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 drove me towards me trying to find out, me being me again, wanting to find out how can I be part of the solution. And as you stay 
as, as you now start to gain interest in that area, you realize that other family members and other friends and family, their loved ones are also dying of the same issues and facing the same challenges. So the differences in healthcare access and healthcare management, I think whether you are on the African continent or whether you are in the UK, you now start to see that um, your challenges, they have followed you as a person, but the space where you are in, the professionals around you are not necessarily understanding your problems because of their limitation around people of your nature or in terms of your race, right? Or nobody has taken keen interest into understanding these issues, not because they don't want to, but it's never been an issue because they've never had a, a real need to serve that demographic. So for me, that became an opportunity to want to understand, okay, us as a, as a people of ethnic minority, you know, how are we accessing healthcare? How are we, are we even taking time to even access healthcare, even if it's available and if it's, even if it's free? So I started to realize that actually us as a people, ethnic minority people, specific to Africans, even though we are in the UK and even though healthcare is free, but actually there are other issues around our culture and our beliefs that don't cause us to want to go to the doctor. <laughs> so that was, that became another new area of interest for me. Okay. Even though we are here, healthcare is free. Doctors can want to see us, even though they may not understand all our problems. But still, we don't even take advantage of that opportunity and we don't even go for our health checkups. You know, if you, if you ask people around you, when was the last time you went to see a doctor? You'll be surprised that actually they've never been to see a doctor until they have a problem. They're going to, to see a doctor. So can you see that you realize then that actually we may want to say healthcare in Africa is difficult access or whatever but is it that healthcare is difficult access but it's all about us being away to healthcare when we have got a problem but we are not proactive in terms of uh, us wanting to understand our health even before we have a problem so that becomes a, a, a really complex area but yeah that's that's kind of um what was my findings um in my journey and i'm still on that journey right now with our healthcare product and our healthcare uh, solution in the uk so did I answer that um, or I missed some of it? I mean, <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been listening and, you know, when we have conversations on the podcast, we have always tried to bring the conversation on Africa. But I am seeing a different angle of how perhaps we should do a better job of talking about Africans in the diaspora. Because, I mean, you are bringing a whole new set of problems and perspectives into living the life of an African in the diaspora and the particular challenges that you face. And you are doing that through the, through the um, health perspective. And that opens up a lot of conversations because the people in the diaspora are still Africans and they are going to be having African problems even though they live in a different land. And no better people to solve those problems than Africans themselves. And, and that brings a lot of interesting perspective to it and i'm i'm very thankful that you are bringing our attention to that i don't know if daniel has a question to to ask to that but i want to segue um before i segue if daniel you have a question you can bring it on on that very perspective but i want to segue to the same things that you were talking about but on the themes of being a woman because i know you are very passionate about a subject and you talk about it a lot and the challenges you face being a woman or 
the opportunities that you actually have gotten, because that's something I said we also don't talk about it, but the particular opportunities that you got because you were able to utilize those gaps that existed because you're a woman and you pursued those opportunities. Okay, thank you so much. So um, I want us to just t t um, just take um, a, a step back, right? So, and I want to make it clear that, you know, equality and all these issues that are around women and gender uh, are a very complex um, conversation. But like I said, for me, I think when I speak to people or when I, when I kind of run women workshops, I will say that I don't think we are in this lifetime and in this generation, we are going to see uh, gender equality where we want to see it. But I think the work that we need to do is to, to set a foundation rather for the next generation to come so that when they come in, we would have made huge strides in terms of, um, the opportunities that are available. So the opportunities are there, but it is, it is a very, it is a very tough road. I want to look at the statistics so far from the small business, uh, prices.co.uk because I follow the small business network and I'm part of, um, angel investment network, like, like you mentioned at the beginning. And can we believe that overly across the globe, right? 84% 84.76% of men still hold the leadership roles across the globe. And only 15.24% and that was in our women and that was in 2014. And that number hasn't really gone up much. It's still on 2016 statistics. I don't know the current ones, but these ones are the ones I, I found when I was doing a project on equality. 81.51% still remains jobs occupied by men at decision-making level and at leadership level. So we are talking about presidents, CEOs, all the people that make everyday decisions, right? They, they sit in these roles. So how on earth are we going to have the equality we are looking for when decisions are in the hands of men? So it, it, that is a very big job. But what we can do, though, is as women be good representatives for our gender and for our girls and boys in the leadership roles that we currently are occupying. And if we can do that well and then educate and inform everyone in terms of why it is important for us to make sure that these roles are occupied by either gender so that we have got better outcomes in decision-making. So why I'm saying this is that I'll, I'll give you an example. And I gave this example when I did a Metro talk, Metro Bank talk uh, in the uh, Women's Month was that I, for example, am a businesswoman, right? And I'm, I'm a migrant African businesswoman with interest in United Kingdom, India, in Africa. But you realize that whether you are in Africa, whether you're in India, whether in, you are in United Kingdom, the people making decisions on how you are going to move forward with a, on your journey with business or whatever are going to be men. My bank manager is a man. My accountant is a man. My lawyer is a man. Are my, um, my advisors are all mainly men, except people I have chosen who are not in the corporate space. For example, for my mentors, 
I make sure I choose a mentor, a woman. But now when I run my organizations, I now make sure that I'm aware that I need to change the narrative. So what do I do? I appoint women as my leaders in my teams. Not that I don't like men, but I am consciously bringing them up the ladder and bringing both the women and the men, but more focused on making sure that at least women have got equal opportunities on my teams as much as the men do. So that's one way we can be doing it. And for me, that's what I, I have decided I will do because the business entrepreneurship journey for me has been a very lonely journey. You know, how, how do you discuss with, with, with your commercial bank manager that actually, as a matter of fact, you know what? I want to take a break from the business because I'm thinking of having children. Like, you know, he will be like, what? You know, so, but if it's a female business manager, it's easier to have that conversation and she will understand and support me from a place of another counterpart understanding what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to achieve. So for me, those are the sort of conversations that you don't find every day and you're not able to, to have every day. And, and they are subtle in terms of the impact that they have because the impact that they have cannot be, you know, counted or documented, but it is there. Another example is that you are looking to uh, get funding to fund the business. Like like I've said to you, we've boot, I've bootstrapped in all my businesses um, and worked my way to becoming an angel investor simply because I've realized that there is a need for people like me to be investing into startups who are female, who invest into startups with the startups. Are, and I'm interested in startups coming from Africa because I want to be impactful on the African continent. But also startups even here in the United Kingdom where you have female startups and young people and they are so clueless in terms of, you know, what's available. And then when they are looking for investment, they are probably looking for maybe a thousand pounds or two thousand pounds. And somebody needs to be able to support them along those journeys and small things, right? When I started, there was nobody I could go to who I could ask for a thousand pounds because everybody else in my network is somebody who is going to work. And I talk about asking for a thousand pounds and telling people that, guess what? I don't have a, I don't have a thousand pounds or two thousand pounds or five thousand pounds to pay salaries this month. They'll be like, yeah, but you chose to be a businesswoman, so get on with it, you know? Whereas if I had got people who can support me and understand my needs, it's going to be much easier to have those conversations. So I really think that as women, I'm calling out, I'm calling out on most women in the leadership skills space, especially women on our African continent. I know that things that are hard and things are tough and sometimes for you to put out yourself out there and mentor people and do things, it's, you know, sometimes time, you don't have the time. But I think for the sake of shaping the future for the women, um, for the next generation, we have got to consciously make the decisions to say we want to occupy these positions. Not because we are going to, the money is going to be very good. No, but because we need more women to be doing doing those kind of roles. Because there is a real gap, you know, globally. And I think some of the themes that I have found and I've been given uh, when I've done talks is that women sometimes tend to need to take a break, for example, to focus on the family. So your male counterpart who, who hasn't taken a break, by the time you come back, he has moved miles ahead of you. And when you come back, you are starting probably where you left or you are taking a few steps back to try and build on your roles. So 
Companies also need to be to have supportive policies that support women to be able to continue on their journey no matter what family issues they need to focus on because at the end of the day the human race still needs to continue and for the human race to continue we need women to continue to to be uh, procreating right so i think that we have got to do it at policy level that is at corporate level to make sure that we intentionally want to have women in the leadership roles even though the women are still childbearing age we still need them in those roles and then we still need to support them if they need to take breaks to go and focus on the family and nowadays because people can work remotely people could be on maternity and still continue to work so we need to support that and then at policy level government level um, country level do we have policies that are forcing uh that are that can be enforced into the corporate spaces and into the companies to make sure that they are including women women's needs and making sure that a certain defined number must be employed must be in leadership and must be in this and i think if we do that we are up to a winning formula but it is still a long journey and for me you know it is lonely because sometimes you find yourself in a boardroom full of 20 men and you are the only woman and you think okay where is everybody else you know so it's it's not comfortable and it's not good so we need more women to be to be coming and be at the table basically We need more women to be coming at the table. Um, thank you for that. I want us to talk about the activities that you do in Zimbabwe. I know recently you were in Zimbabwe. Um, how are you bringing back all the knowledge you've learned? And how are you giving back your resources, knowledge, experiences, training to the people of Zimbabwe and affecting the continent so that you are not um, attached from it but you actually integrated into it thank you so much isaac i think that's a brilliant question so i believe that you know actually strongly in my heart i believe that we are the moses of our time we are the moses of our time in the sense that we were allowed to to leave the continent and be exposed to knowledge and opportunities that are we wouldn't have had if we hadn't left the continent and then we have been equipped with uh, all these things that we can now bring and impact the continent. Like I was saying to you, for me, I am so deeply connected to back home because <clears throat> I know that we have got a role to play in changing the, the future of our continent. And actually, Africa is going to be the new emerging markets. We are all aware of that in terms of if you're following, it has got, Africa has got the youngest population. African has got the, the, the biggest resources for our natural resources that we need for everything. Everybody is looking to Africa. So us as Africans, we are the only people who can bring solutions that are going to solve our real problems because we really understand these problems. We've, these are our lived experiences and we can change them. So anybody coming from outside can say, okay, I'm bringing money. I'm bringing a solution. But without the actual Africans being part of that, uh, you know, project or that idea, I really think that the solutions are not going to solve the actual problem. So for me, because of that kind of mindset, I have never really left, left home. You know, while I live in the, in the United Kingdom, I have always tried to figure out 
all our problems that we have in healthcare and in education and everything, how can we be the answer to those problems for our children who are on the continent, for everybody who's on the continent? And so because healthcare naturally is where I, where, where, what the space I am in, we, I decided that I wanted to continue to be feeding back on the continent and solving the problems. And so my journey of my father-in-law and dad but dying a week apart with diabetes led me to want to create a solution. And I realized that if here in the UK, we have got all these doctors and we've got all this amazing healthcare, but what if this healthcare and these services could be accessed by anyone from anywhere across the globe? And actually, what if it didn't matter where you were, whether as a patient or as a, as a professional, what if, what if it didn't matter to where you were for you to access services? Could it be that, excuse me, the current lives that we are losing now, they could be stopped and losses could be reduced? And so because of that kind of mindset and that kind of thinking, I started to analyze how, how much money we were spending to the continent every month. You should see my list of how much medication I have to buy for so many people in my immediate family and and is my way of giving back just to help people manage their health. So I started to look at that. And then I started to look at, okay, in my immediate family, how many people who have got healthcare conditions that are, that are not being managed correctly? And then how many people or how many of those we love, my mom, my dad, I was talking about, that we have to send money every month back home for them to go and see a doctor. And then the doctor will order an x-ray. And when that x-ray is done, the doctor skips the x-ray. And then next month, Mom has got a backache and then you have to send some more money and then they have to go for another x-ray. But all these records, if I was to ask my mom, well, now it's a different conversation because of the solution we have. But then I, I we looked at it and thought, if we wanted to really understand what has been going on with our mom, how could we find this record? Where could we find this information? Only to realize that actually, no, we don't have it. It's It's not even anywhere where we can access it. And okay. If we were to contact the doctors to say, Dr. So and so, can I have my mom's record? But probably that doctor is already long dead. So, so really there were, there were real problems that were right in front of us that we could solve immediately. And so, you know, we went, went back on the ground and, and thought, okay, how, what is the easiest and the simplest way for us to start this going? And literally what we did was we started a digital driven clinic in Rua, uh, Zimbabwe which is uh, about 30 minutes drive from the city center. We just wanted somewhere where we could have a flat flagship location. What we did was we put computers and tablets in that clinic. We wanted to run it paperless. But what we wanted to do was to make remote health monitoring accessible, specific to diabetics and hypertensives, because that was the, the area of interest. And if you look on the statistics, those are the two biggest killer diseases in Zimbabwe. And so if we could allow people to monitor their health, wherein they could take their blood pressure from wherever they are across the country and that blood pressure and check their blood sugar from wherever they are in the country. It's logged onto our system and our nurses and our doctors and our carers, they just ring them every day to access that data. And now this was starting to create a good data or a good data set for us to start to have an idea of how those patterns are happening. So so we started that project um, in, in, in 2016 and Believe it or not, up to now, I was in Zimbabwe last month and we have got more than 25,000 uh, patients that are monitored remotely 
for their diabetes and hypertension. And we have saved, we have preserved lives. And our team goes to churches and local organizations and church leaders and everybody else to raise awareness about these diseases and also to encourage them to get the understanding of the importance of monitoring their health rather than waiting till they they have a stroke or 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 they have a you know a crisis and and so the feedback that we are getting from the community is absolutely amazing and and the most important thing that has happened is now we are now learning about on the links of cultural beliefs religious beliefs and health we're realizing that cultural beliefs and religious beliefs have got a strong bearing on how people respond to their health or how people manage their health and it's going it's got an impact on how a population can suffer from certain issues and not do anything about it and now we are now building these cultural competences into our technology and making it much better so we have got a a doctors and a nursing dashboard where pe- patients and everybody else monitor their health data is coming into our system but also we have developed an app now where patients can actually monitor their health and input that data from their app in and in it and in a few weeks time we've now done a a complete integration of 300 dev- more than 300 devices which our app can now pull data in so as long as you're wearing a fitbit or you're wearing a, a device or something that information is going to be pulling into your app and you are now able to monitor your health so that we can preserve health improve the life expectancy hopefully that could be part of that because people are dying early people are dying unnecessarily because they're predisposed to things like diabetes and hypertension but because they don't do anything about it they don't change lifestyle they die early and families suffer the country suffers so you can see that for me that's more rewarding because i can see the outcomes i can improve the health of other people who who are going to live longer than my dad and my father-in-law and now with that knowledge and that data we are now coming back to the uk and now informing our ethnic minority communities as well to say guys this is the data that this is our findings on the ground in africa and actually the same problems we are realizing that from our project which was funded by innovate uk as well in uh, 2020 2020-2021 when black people were dying the most from covid one of the reasons was beliefs and social you know settings where people just think no we are not going to have the vaccine or we are not going to listen to what they are saying about covid and actually people are already diabetic and hypertensive and so it's quite interesting how all this is all coming together because we are doing work on the on the continent so for me the continent is benefiting from my knowledge i'm giving back and then here in the uk we're continuing with that agenda of helping people preserve pre- preserve their health so i think it's, there is a real benefit from us as being josephs of our times if you are willing to put ourselves forward and say okay I'm willing to give my time I'm willing to invest in this. We give the devices for free as well and we are now also helping the patients to access cheaper medication to manage their health at the point when they realize that you know what they have got high high blood pressure so we help them access better medication and help them negotiate pricing for their medication. And so we are solving our African problems but we are continuing on that agenda to say that you know we are the josephs of our time so i really think that yeah we have a role to play and for me that's how i'm doing it and currently doing it in zimbabwe that links very close to conversation had this previous on this call actually um but i'll let daniel ask this question 
Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting how you described like the kind of circular, like how you, like certain problems, and then you uh, uh, use them. Let's say the solution of the African problem in the UK. But my thought about this, um, what I'm thinking about is, of course, um, there are African problems, and there is data and solutions that can be kind of used to maybe address them, and then also scale some of these uh, solutions globally. Um, but then I think there is, all, there could also be a component of certain problems that are even African problems, but some of the root causes could be, um, coming more from, let's say, a Western lifestyle or from a Western system. And I kind of feel that sometimes there might be solutions within Africa or different approaches. So there is the problem, but before the problem, what led to the problem and how can we kind of ensure I know I may be going a bit outside, but how can we ensure that kind of knowledge on the ground, things that maybe um, is inherent in African systems, is also utilized? So a step before the problem. I don't know if you see the picture I'm painting, but maybe if you have any thoughts on kind of utilization of inherent African knowledge, and then if there is a potential to scale those ones too. So not just from the problem perspective. Um, yeah, so may I check if I am understanding this correctly? So from our findings on the continent, right, with the projects that we're doing in Zimbabwe, uh, a good example is that um, um, we become predisposed to things like hypertension and diabetes, uh, specific to type 2 diabetes because of our diet and our lifestyle, right? And if you look, and if you look at Again, specific to Zimbabwe, this I'm going to make it. If you look at Zimbabwe and we look at our diet and our lifestyle, right? You find that originally in Zimbabwe, our foods were not even the food that we call the staple food now. You know? Uh, so, for example, in Zimbabwe, the food that we call the staple food that is eaten across the country mainly is what we call sadza. And that's called pup. I think across Africa. But that pap, originally in Zimbabwe, we should have been eating pap made from the grains, which are your sorghum and your millet. Those were the original grains that we were supposed to eat, which are kinder to our tummy. And the kind of energy that it releases and how it's processed by our bodies is very different. Wherein now, the biggest pap we eat, even for our porridge, is the maize meal, which is the white grain. And when I have researched and when I've looked at that, that grain was actually meant for, it was supposed to be food for, for the cows. But when the white people came to um, colonize Zimbabwe, they realized that this one was the easiest to grow and the easiest to commercialize and the easiest to achieve whatever. But now the negative effect of that is that the Zimbabwean that we have today does not use as much energy uh, to for their day-to-day -day life with like the Zimbabwean back then but the the eating habits have not changed you know so there is an opportunity for local um producers or local educators or, or, or local healthcare organizations to focus on you know changing the food again to making us more in line with the food that is the right food for the Zimbabwean person which is your your millet your sorghum 
now nowadays i think they are also doing a grain called a mixed grain which i really love and i because i always bring most of my food from home if i'm honest because i i'm into all this organic and stuff like that so i found that when i eat more of that it it helps you less predisposed to this kind of diseases so is that kind of kind of thing that you're thinking about exactly i mean i actually i mean i didn't have the background knowledge that you have but in actually that's is for instance when you mention your example i was exactly thinking about probably the diet and there might have been a shift so it was exactly what i was thinking at or thinking about so you answered absolutely <laughs> yeah so absolutely so it yeah. so so those, if you imagine that um i mean this is absolutely amazing so during the covid time right i was talking to my mom and the most of the doctors and everybody on the ground in Zimbabwe remember the covid medic, i mean the covid management nobody knew how to manage it but there is a plant in Zimbabwe that is, they call it zumbani i don't know what it's called in english i don't even know if there's an english word for it and this plant is available just you know generally available like you know it was all over and people were taking this plant boiling it drinking the water and 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 um steaming with it and it was managing the covid people managed covid with this plant you know so it's looking at now how this plant i've noticed that they're now packaging it in zimbabwe and they're calling it something else i don't know what they're calling it there is another plant called uh, resurrection plant which it dries and everything and if you take the dried leaves and you can now use those dried leaves you can make tea with it and actually the if you leave it overnight the leaves will look uh lively the following day that's why it's called a re- resurrection plant it was also used during covid and this is readily available on the continent so i think there is an opportunity for us on the continent we have everything that we need to manage the diseases to also avoid the diseases because if we go back to basics eat what was naturally meant for us i believe that some of these diseases could be easily avoided we wouldn't even end up there so for us that's part of the work that is check up health team does with health education in the communities on don't worry too much about trying to go to the supermarket and buying all these processed foods actually you have got one to three you can work with this you can work with this so i think that there is more that we can we can be doing together but i think each person would need to pick one thing and run with it but all our solutions are are within us and within the continent and you realize that also when things like baobab i mean in zim we've got the baobab powder and i, I couldn't imagine I've, i found it in holland and barats here in the uk and a, a bottle is going a small a bottle is going for more than 15 pounds you know and I, i'm thinking this baobab now i just bring the baobab powder back home the moringa tea and the moringa powder moringa tree is available even in, at my homestead in my village but here we are we are having the moringa capsules just check the pricing on them even you know so it's about changing the narrative about the the african story and us taking control of what's available on the continent and then making that our solutions that come from within and then those solutions can now be distributed outside the continent that that's really how i look at it yeah I, i mean i totally agree and i think it's kind of even draws a similarity to even the way you uh, narrated your story at the beginning when you were in the uk and the the like the authenticity within like like accepting who you are and like this is who you are and then i think that is kind of sometimes what 
maybe also lacks to an extent in the sense of having that kind of confidence that you mentioned to think that something that has been there, something that is local could actually be a solution to a problem. So I think, uh, yeah, fully agree. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that very much relates to conversation that we had two weeks ago. Um, and it's funny, the intersections that we have in the conversations, because we spoke to someone who's totally different from you, doesn't work in healthcare, hasn't been a nurse, hasn't traveled out of the country, but as an artist and a writer and was talking about how we've always historically, and he's a historian as well, had indigenous knowledge forms. And I think what you were saying speaks to that. We have indigenous knowledge forms indigenous ways of eating, indigenous ways of medicine, and we have to own it and then to the ownership and acceptance and not trying to be Western and not trying to um, adapt these things. Like build base, I don't know if it has to be research that has to go through it, but we'll find ways of legitimizing, legitimizing these knowledge systems and making them work for us because they have historically worked for us and then sending outside the world and make it our own, our story. I think that's very powerful. So, Fungai, what are your last words? Ah, yeah, thank you so much, guys, for having me on the podcast, and I wish we could be having more of these conversations. But my last words are, our time, I really genuinely think that our time is now. You know, the world is currently looking at um, inclusivity, right? And when you look at the the word inclusivity, it means that, so I've analyzed and tried to understand this way. Does it mean we were inclu- excluded before? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, inclusivity and diversity. So does it mean that the world wasn't diverse before? I, I mean, these are conversations for another day. But I believe that, you know, our time is now. The world is co- calling for diversity. The world is calling for inclusivity. So I always tell my young people um, that, I mean, my, 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 I remember my daughter going to a school and saying, coming home crying and saying, oh my gosh, I'm o- the only black person in the school. And I had to sit her down and say to her, look, that makes you special. That means each time they want black representation, it's only you, right? So you can grab all the opportunities that are going to be available for black people. So I am sending the same message to everyone who is in, in a leadership role in small or big ways. You are the diversity. So take this diversity opportunity to create and write your narrative and shape the stories of diversity so that when the stories of diversity are being spoken about, you will be the one who will be said, you changed your, you changed diversity uh, picture because you did one, two, three. So this is really our opportunity on the global uh, space to make sure that we shape the narrative of what diversity means. Diversity means that we are coming and we are available at the table. We are taking a piece of the table and we are shaping that piece of the table and making it an African story piece of the table. We are making it an authentic African story piece of the table and we are correcting whatever that wasn't narrated right before and we're making it right now and we are owning our problems and we are taking control of them and we are doing something about it to create solutions that are going to solve our problems in real time in making it making them solutions sorry that are meaningful to us that are going to solve our real problems so there is a stake at the table for us i think is 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 people from the african continent to own the african continent problems but also to own 
the African continent solutions. So yeah, so thank you so much, guys, for having me. We need to own African problems, but also the solutions. Thank you very much, Fungai, for joining us. I think this has been a very revealing, introspective conversation full of ideas, full of energy. And we've had a great time. I hope you had a great time as well. Um, Fungai and Demera is the CEO of Health App Checkup Health um, and a serial entrepreneur, as I said before, um, a great individual who's committed her life to solving problems in the healthcare space, a motivational speaker, a mother, several other things. And we've had a great time talking to her this afternoon. Um, it's always a pleasure when we bring people like this and we discuss ideas and we're trying to find ways that we can solve Africa's continent. It always starts off meandering, but it ends on a beautiful note and we have had a beautiful time. So thank you again, um, for Guy for joining us. Thank you guys. I look forward to coming on the podcast again. Have a good one. Bye bye. Thank you.